is the voice. Certainty of others, the life, love, sight, hearing of others. Where is this voice coming from? I see you also face to face. This is Soundbox Signals, a podcast that brings archival recordings to life through a combination of curated close listening and conversation. Together, we'll consider how these literary recordings signify in the contemporary moment and ask what listening allows us to know about cultural history. Full-length versions of these recordings are available online in our spoken web archive at soundbox.ok.ubc.ca. How curious you are to me. I'm Kara Shear, and I'm joined today in the studio at UBC Okanagan by guest curator Amy Thiessen, who is the spoken web uh, RA and our very own uh, project manager. And she's also completing a honors thesis on the work of Sharon Thiessen. I'm also joined by Emily Murphy, who is a professor of digital humanities and assistant director of the AMP Lab. And today we have from Vancouver, Hannah McGregor, who's assistant professor in publishing at Simon Fraser University and host of The Secret Feminist Agenda. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, I too am delighted. Amy, are you also <laughs> delighted? Super. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, we're here to talk about a really special recording, um, a weird recording. Um, so we're going to rewind to March 14th, 1970, and have a listen to Warren Tallman introducing um, an event that is called the Charles Olson Memorial. So here we go. Some people who were planning this, that we would have all the poets lined up in front on a sheet of paper so that it could be read off one, two, three, four, five. It didn't work out. So all you poets are in the audience. And so it's going to have to be when it gets around to that point at which you would like to read for this reading, it is, it's going to have to be kind of Quaker, you know, uh, or what I assume is Quaker, that you stand up on your feet and walk forward in some calm or pause that has taken place. Henry. Yes. Yes. You can't hear? Oh, I, yeah, I'm supposed to make an announcement about how long to read. Uh, it's always impressed me as rather ridiculous to tell a poet how long to read. But I will tell all of you poets this, that if there's a rhythm that's going, which makes for three or four or five minutes, if you break it by reading for 40 minutes, everybody in the audience will hate you. <laughs> So I would say three or four or five minutes, although you understand that's not an instruction to impede on the freedom of any poet to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. I'm, I am, I am, uh, I'm being deliberately rather facetious and frivolous uh, so that we can uh, have that to work on to uh, move into uh, an actually more serious occasion. And uh, since we do not have any listing 
of the poets. You must choose your own occasion as it occurs to you. Uh, but first, I would like to have Robin. Is Robin here? Okay. We'll, uh, Robin Blazer is going to start this uh, with a reading. Uh, it is going to be interrupted with a tape, and there will be an interruption after the tape of about three or two minutes or so, and then uh, the poets will read whatever has occurred to them to read on the occasion of this memorial for Charles Olson. Amy, you chose this recording. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what we know about it? Yeah, so this recording, as uh, Kara said earlier, was recorded on March 14th, 1970. Um, we know that they are gathered at St. Anselm's Church on the UBC Vancouver campus and that it was recorded on Reel to Reel. Yeah, and it's about, um, it's an excerpt. It's the very beginning of a, a, a whole recording. It's about an hour long. Um, it also... Uh, features a number of different uh, poets. Uh, Robin Blazer, obviously, is mentioned. Uh, Judith Coppathorne, Peter Quartermain, Lionel Kearns, um, Richard Summer from Montreal, Maxine Gad, and quite a few other uh, poets. Um, it's a weird introduction to a poetry reading. Hannah, I'm going to turn that over to you. You've you've been to a lot of record er, poetry readings. Um, what what's weird about this? I mean, so one of the one of the major jobs when I think about what hosts at poetry readings are trying to do, one of the major things that they are doing is sort of set tone and norms for what's about to proceed. And a lot of that, a lot of the work at literary readings has to do with establishing how long people are allowed to read for. Because in my experience, without that, people will read for a wild amount of time. And even with the norms, people will read for a wild amount of time. And so what really, the first listen through to this, what really struck me was that invitation to a Quaker-like sort of self-electing process in which poets will get up, you poets will just get up and read when they feel moved to do so and are sort of given this like, you know, read for four to five minutes or whatever feels right. Probably not forty, which is um, there's a lot of a lot of lateral movement in that four to forty <laughs> minutes. Yeah, you bet. Um, it's I mean, there's a sort of sense of of spontaneity, but Emily, it's kind of it's it is controlled, right? I mean, he is setting up some boundaries. What are the boundaries that you're hearing in this? Yeah, super controlled. Um, I mean, I think that one of the major boundaries is this. Uh, this idea that social pressure will help keep boundaries around the poets, which uh, I think that many of us know probably wouldn't work. But it, one of the things that I do find really interesting about this is um, is that buried in this desire for spontaneity is kind of a like a series of conventions about what's going to count as it, like even down to instructions for movement, right? Like some kind of Quaker ceremony where you like you stand up in a moment of silence and walk towards the front of the room. There's already uh, like a really embodied physical dimension being made explicit in his instructions, um, which indicates to me then that there are actually like quite clear boundaries for what counts as spontaneity and probably what counts as um, as improvisation of a sort mm -hmm. uh, in this room. That I mean, we often think of improvisation as a thing that just kind of springs <laughs> from you internally, um, but there are there's plenty of research that is calling for a kind of richer understanding. Of, uh, of what the conventions of improvisation are or kind of conventions that signal this sort of authentic 
spontaneous contribution. I was just thinking, even even in that, um, be totally spontaneous, but four to five minutes suggests that this really interesting tension between uh, the desire to establish an environment of spontaneity and sort of free responsiveness to to what's happening alongside the need to state and establish norms. And, and that tension is really interesting and also leads me to wonder, you know, historically, at what point do we start establishing norms of five minute readings of 10 minute readings? Like, you know, when you hear about readings that last 45 minutes, you know, what what how and when and why are we starting to arrive at a sense of what is supposed to be apparently kind of innate or kind of intuitive or kind of felt the sense of how long is an appropriate length to read? My, I mean, my hunch is that that history is probably a religious one, right? That we probably start seeing shorter readings while when more people are literate, mm. essentially. I mean, my my own, any of my knowledge, which is limited um, about... <laughs> Um, about how people would read in public is about kind of belletristic traditions, right? Where you would you would read letters because you weren't reading to a literate population, and you would read um, uh, verses and sermons that were timed to like the bells that would go off in um, in a, in a public square. And so that's like that's a really religious background mm-hmm. to public readings. And here we have an ostensibly secular event that's held in a church. And that uh, can I give a spoiler about the first? reading yeah you sure can the first reading is from revelations um so it's like shot through with these religious contexts in addition to the the invocation of the quakerness right there's actually quite a lot of religiosity invoked in this um one of the questions we ask on the podcast is like what does listening allow us to know about cultural history and i'm going to turn this over to amy to ask you what kind of information do we hear um, in this podcast, do we do we gather through through listening in terms of like space or uh, numbers of people? I mean, we have a list of of poets, but what kind of sense do we get of of the setting here? Yeah, um, quite a few times, and even just the short bit of the recording, we can hear the audience um, like laughing or talking. Or um, there's that point at the beginning when Warren's not sure what the I think woman at the back is saying, and there's a moment that doesn't turn out to be the technical difficulty that oh you can't hear but that's something that you can tell the technology is present in that room and it's we can hear it through the tape and we can tell that Warren is miked and that there's sort of that um he's in front of people and there's a crowd there and yeah yeah there's also I mean there's also one more point at least one more point in the tape too where we get a sense of like how many people um, or like Warren's perception of, of how many people are in the audience. Um, what is this? It's actually one of your favorite parts, if I remember. What is that moment? Um, yeah, we get the moment when Warren isn't sure if Robin is there. You can sort of sense that he's looking around and maybe doesn't see him right away. Um, yeah, is unsure. It's not like he's there's a crowd of 15 people and you can see him right away. Yeah. Um, yeah, is, is Robin here? Is, is you know, and he's looking in the crowd. Um, somebody's also suggested that this recording that it's possible that the lights are turned down and he's not able to actually see into the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, obviously there's limits to what we can know through through listening. Um, there is that feeling, though, right? Like the if, including the way that he addresses the audience as you poets, and sort of doesn't like 
oh, sorry, you can't like, he, you know, he doesn't call people by name. And if you're sort of thinking like you're familiar with the people who are here, then you would say somebody's name when they are talking to you. So I, I there, there's certainly the sense that he can't necessarily see them. And that question of is it because there's a huge crowd or is it because it's dark or is it because I've never been in this space? Like, what is this venue like? Is it full of weird pillars that hide people? I don't know. Yeah, and I guess one—I mean, certainly one of the research questions or the things that we'll we'll do when we're pursuing research on this type is actually go to Saint Anselm's Church and have a sun, mm. uh, have a look at um, its architecture. Um, I want to pick up on something that you've kind of moved us toward, which is that relationship between Warren Tallman and the audience. Um, he's an English professor; he's not himself a poet, um, but he certainly had a good relationship with um, you know with poets and was um, through. The, the facilitation of events like this through his teaching of poetry. Um, what do we hear in terms of his relationship with the audience? And I'm going to go to you, Hannah, first, and then I'm going to go over to Emily. Well, I like I keep mentioning it, um, Karis, because you pointed it out to me, and now I really hear it whenever I listen, <laughs> is his addressing the audience as you poets. Yeah, I um, can't which get over is that. very funny. Um, it has this kind of this familiarity and also this sort of joking disdain. Um, like, you know what you poets are like, you know, it just gives just gives a vibe of um, the sort of when you are familiar enough with a group to make fun of them, which suggests a sort of an, an intimacy of environment, right, that you don't make fun of an audience unless they are your friends, uh, which sets up, you know, this sort of um, warmth. Like you don't get the feeling that this is a random public reading. The audience are the speakers. The It's a community gathering. And you can feel that in the way that he is addressing an audience that is at once the sort of participants and the listeners for the event. Yeah. Emily, what about you? What do you hear in terms of that relationship between Tallman and the audience and maybe that kind of um, question of authority? Oh, question of authority. Um, I mean, I, like, I don't want to be the person who keeps bringing it back to to religion, but I guess <laughs> that's my it. role. Um, I just like I always hear this tape in terms of like the like the situation of mourning. Um, and it always sounds to me like a wake. Um, and it's a bit of background to that. I, I'm born in Ireland and my entire family is Irish. We are not the kind of Irish people who have wakes. That's actually like quite specific. But um, but it's still this sort of uh, community gathering among friends where you'll tell jokes and sing songs and maybe read from Revelations. Um, but uh, there is a sort of um, like a bondedness and a kind of joy in the morning. And so I think like I mean, what's 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 an authority figure in, <laughs> in Irish culture, if not a priest? Right. Um, and he is sort of like in a way, like literally speaking to a flock. Right. And mm -hmm. um, that's that's also interesting in terms of the of the relationship of the professor to uh, professor to students, professor to uh, poets who he is actively engaged in making the like the canonical poetic community of his age. Um, yeah. Yeah. We were, we were talking a little bit about that, that professorial feel, right? Like it does not surprise me to hear that this person is a professor because I hear in the way that he is addressing the audience, the, the gathering, something that sounds a lot to me, like how I talk to my students, that sort of um, facetious and sort of like self undermining, like making fun of yourself a little bit, which sets a very particular tone of like, okay, I'm in charge here, but like not that in charge. So 
you know, here's some structure, but also I really want you to feel free to take over and for this to be your space to do with as you want. But you also like like Emily was saying, you know, total freedom, total uh, improvisation is sort of impossible without structure. So you need somebody taking that role and saying, like, I am going to be the guiding hand here. But how do I guide people into a feeling of openness and spontaneity and participation and sort of some level of, of safety? Because what you're asking people to do, step forward and just begin to read, does require some level of, of comfort. So, you know, how you establish that tone. I hear in that humor some of that work happening. Yeah, definitely. Amy, what like what do you hear in terms of like picking up on what Hannah was saying about shared authority and um, sort of self-deprecating humor? He's getting prompts from the audience, and I guess maybe that's what I'm what I'm asking about like those moments where the audience is prompting him around certain things that he's um, he's meant to say up at the front. Yeah, there's the moment in the tape when you can't hear um, the person speaking, but he's like, "Oh, I've been I'm supposed to tell you that you can only read for." Um, this amount of time and there's other points of interaction I guess and one thing that I sort of notice is that it seems to me that he's not necessarily taking um, cues from the audience as to like his tone or like his approach to what he's saying like he's being sort of um, like goofy and funny in the first bit but in a way that I would imagine someone else they say something funny the audience laughs oh I'm gonna I'm gonna say something else funny now but I think he's just genuinely being it sounds like he's just genuinely being himself and um, speaking um, sort of without that intent to get get a laugh. Yeah. I mean, and you've listened to a lot of recordings with Warren, you know, where Warren Tallman is uh, he's giving a lecture to a class or I think you've got a really good feel for him as a person. And this is very much uh, very Warren Tallman esque, if you will. <laughs> um I think a little bit more about mourning, right? He changes register partway through this tape from being what he calls deliberately facetious, and he's being a little self-reflexive about that. Um, and the register changes from being funny to serious. Um, Emily, I want to come over to you and ask you about um, a little bit more about mourning. What kind of space is being created for mourning here, and what is the role of um, humor, seriousness, that kind of gravity? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a great question. It's one of the things that I love about this tape is I, I feel like there's this kind of subfocal uh, like landscape of the emotion in the room in a way, like probably the um, the most explicit way that you can hear it is something that um, that Hannah has pointed out to me, which is uh, the sort of the murmur that goes through the crowd when Warren Tallman says, we're not going to have five people. <laughs> <laughs> instead you'll just do whatever <laughs> or he counts them like oh, it's gonna have you numbered up at the front like one two three four five it's like thanks for it i forgot how numbers work <laughs> well and then as you pointed out like everyone starts going like excuse me what yeah yeah you hear it like it kind of sounds like this is the first they're hearing of it right that oh, they also sure. were led to believe that they would have an order and that they are they are now finding out that no, in fact, Quaker style, you will be self-electing. <laughs> and it's kind of like this weird, this rejection of like the pedagogical, right? Like mm -hmm. that one, two, three, four, five, right? Like he's count, he's physically counting them, mm -hmm. but that's that's not what's going to happen, right? So he yeah. performs the thing that's not going to happen mm -hmm. in this really kind of, um, you know, it becomes almost, it is almost humorous, right? It's like 
very there's a kind of physicality to it of establishing yep. of space on the stage yeah. and it is like making the you know creating for us the thing that will not happen which is like overly pedagogical overly constructed and it is the thing to be rejected mm-hmm. in favor of this more spontaneous um yeah spontaneous form that is more appropriate for mourning do we want to make a connection, Emily, between... Yeah, I mean, he he makes this rhetorical move, right, where he says, like, I'm being deliberately facetious and um, and frivolous on what is actually, like, quite a, did he say, solemn occasion, maybe? Um, and so there's sort of, like, there's there's more than one switch, right? Like, there's the, um, like, or or maybe not more than one switch, but the switch does, has two roles, right? That we have the, um, like, humor as the lead-in, um, as a setup for a solemn occasion that will entail reading verses from the Bible. Um, but humor as also a kind of a kind of marking of occasion, right? Um, and a kind of framing of um of the morning and of the solemnness. Um and I still like I feel like so much of of the like the evidence that I gather from this tape is is just like the a feeling in the room, like a kind of warmth that's it it's it's difficult to point to like any one thing that you might be able to hear from the audience, but it feels like maybe the like maybe the echoes in the room are like are letting you know that people might be like kind of chatting to their neighbor while he's making jokes at the front of um, at the front of the room or um, that they're like like laughing and chuckling to themselves. Right. So there is a kind of um, like a, it's not like it's not quite joy, but it is sort of fellow feeling and warmth. Um which indicates to me that like there is a a really nice acknowledgement of the social role of mourning, right, and the um and the social embeddedness of of that kind of loss. Yeah, because I mean they've they've gathered on the occasion of the death of a major American poet, yeah. and the way that they're going to celebrate that or mark that occasion is through the act of reading, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know again like make you know making space for different. Um, different types of like that morning is individual and therefore the space needed to read or mark that occasion is also individual whether it's short three to four minutes or well not not for not 40 minutes (laughs) well like it's so individual but it's so communal as well right because i mean if Mm -hmm. if morning is so individual stay in your own house and read for 40 minutes to yourself right but um instead uh, there's this nice tension between not infringing on the freedom of any poet to read um, and don't read for 40 minutes. Everyone will think you're a jerk. And the expectation, right? So so feeling the pause in which yeah. you stand up and read means attentive listening, right? That you're not just sitting there like checked out waiting for your turn. You have to be listening and engaging. So it is the sort of interesting tension between the individual and the communal, which we can think of as being a characteristic of religious experience and a characteristic yeah, of collective mourning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guiding principle of this whole event seems to be attentiveness to the audience, right? And attentiveness to each other. Um, you know, you you know when you're going to, when it's your turn to read, when there's a kind of a space and and you arise. And it's very, he describes it in a very physical way, right? You arise you get up on your, on your own feet. on your feet, right? Because yeah. though there would be any other, I mean, I suppose there would be maybe other ways of of getting up, but in this case, it is yeah. you get up on mm-hmm. your on your feet and you walk toward. Um, there's a real physicality of of the description. Um, 
going to bring it over to Amy again, and I want to ask you about um, technology and how technology features in this tape. What moments do you hear technology making itself present? Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's this moment when um, Warren's saying that there's going to be um, there's going to be a tape and then there's going to be a reading and then there's going to be another interruption. And it's very like sort of vague what that's going to be. And by saying that it's going to be an interruption, it's not really interrupting. And what we know also is that from our perspective, there the tape doesn't actually surface at all on the our version on the reel, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is in some ways very characteristic of of Tallman in general. He, you know, we have the tape, the event that's being recorded, but then there's also the indication that there's going to be a recording within the recording or the uh, the playback of a recording within the recording. Um, and then we also hear we also hear the mic, right, where someone someone isn't able to hear from the audience. Um, technology makes itself present. Um, yeah, I think throughout throughout the tape. Well, I wonder. Um, so you're right that we can like we sort of we get an indication of the presence of the mic, but I I feel like that is um, is Tallman interpreting the reaction of the audience that way, not necessarily the audience actually experiencing those those aspects of the technology. Right? Like he like inst- instead of I've just thrown you a curveball, um, <laughs> it's oh you must not be able to hear what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think I, I mean, this is something that happens with newer technologies all the time is that once the newer technology is present, it it gets to have the role of being technological. Um, and then all of the other technologies that people are engaging with all the time are perceived as naturalized and non-technological. So um, even though he's like they're reading from books in a room that has like probably quite specific acoustics um in a like language that is already an extension of human capacity but it's the tape that dominates the sort of technological landscape whether or not it is in fact present it's the idea of tapiness in a way yeah <laughs> tapiness tapiness good thing you tm I'm, I'm that was going to be the title of my new book <laughs> tapiness i, I mean, love it. i'll take royalties <laughs> Um, and in fact, that that distrust of the microphone, that distrust of technology is actually something so common across recordings that Christine Mitchell, uh, I think when she was a postdoc at uh, Concordia, create a whole, created a whole compilation. Uh, I think it's about two minutes long. And it's all the excerpts of that exact moment of distrust of the microphone. Yeah. Can you? And it's called Can You Hear Me? Um, and it's a compilation of all re- you know, readers across the Sir George Williams reading series saying things like, is this thing on? Can you hear me at the back? Can you hear me? Um, and so Warren, uh, again, that that particular distrust of the technology in the room, um, it's both, you know, the microphone is both facilitating his connection with the audience, but it's also um, the thing to be distrusted. Yeah, you're so right about that distrust. But I wonder then if we can put that in conversation with how we've been talking about authority, because at the same time that it is expected to fail, right, expected to be the reason that people can't hear him. Um, it's also like being, it's a recording for posterity. And um, I think you and I have talked in other ways about how uh, Tallman is doing all of this recording at the same time as like law enforcement is using tapes um, as, yeah. as like the new technology of catching criminals right there. Um, yeah. They're, they're becoming this uh, 
uh, sort of incontrovertible version of evidence quite yeah, quickly. Surveillance. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't I don't think that I have a so what about the, that relationship then between mistrust and authority. And I, I don't think it's as radical as I'm making it sound like it's. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that there is something there about the way that technologies become are turned into via social processes are turned into um forms of witness, forms of evidence, forms of authority, that you get a really clear sense of the work that is being done around mm -hmm. generating understandings of new technologies when you get these archival moments in which people evince, for example, distrust. So like it, it is it is helpful in terms of thinking about the very deliberate work that's being done around transforming audio recording into evidence. Uh, when you hear the context in which it is not. Yeah, that's nice. Um, I'm going to go around um, with the group and just ask you finally, what is your favorite part of this recording? And maybe it's something we've already talked about, but um, favorite favorite moment or favorite aspect of this? Emily, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, it's the murmurs in the room that you can kind of like you can hear the walls almost like the echoes off the walls. I love that. Hannah? I, it's got to be like it's probably a tie for me between when he counts out loud and when he tells people to get up on their feet. Like it is these moments in which there is I, I like the way you refer to it as being like overtly almost over the top pedagogical, like get up on your feet and step for it. Like, yeah, OK, again, Warren, we know how to get up. <laughs> yeah. Amy, what about you? Yeah. And I, I have said this already, but my favorite part is. Um, when Warren says, is Robin here? And <laughs> is just just unsure. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's also, you know, kind of quite a moment of anxiety. If that's like you're, you know, you're counting on Robin to open the, you know, the more serious part of the occasion, like, it would be really great if he were there. And you can hear this, you know, you can you can almost hear him scanning, right? Like where he's, mm -hmm. he's looking around. Yeah. At least if Robin didn't show up, you'd still have the text of his reading. <laughs> That that is true. That is uh, yeah. He reads he reads from Revelations, uh, John. I forget which. Uh, which and is I like. also like wonder if Robin knows he's about to be called on first and like importantly out by name first, and then and then yeah. nobody else is is called by their name to come up and read. That's right. Yeah. 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 Karis, what's oh, your favorite part? Oh. <laughs> I love it when they turn it back on. Um, it's the you poets. It just it just real. I was like. I realized at that moment, like I could imagine doing all the things, um, you know, that he does in terms of facilitation. But the moment where he says, you poets, I was like trying to imagine myself doing that in a room of like my poet colleagues who I totally enjoy. I can't imagine them, you know, just being like, all you poets <laughs> and like what their reaction would be <laughs> to that. Um, it's so it's so weird, but it also I think really speaks to that. Um, that's that relationship he like a very particular relationship that he okay. has with them and and probably nobody else does and he's emphatically not a poet right in the in that like inhaling them as you poets um it's also marking him as not poet but he gets to do that because he has this special relationship um and i think because of the work he's done mm -hmm. because of the work he's done over you know the past decade and more in really f cultivating uh, literary community. Yeah. 
I mean, we uh, we talked briefly about the sort of um, the modernist landscape in um, in this recording, uh, especially because we have sort of like super traditional um, like readings from the Bible. And then immediately the thing that follows that on the tape, um, which is not in the explicit recording, is like experimental sound poetry uh, and how for a lot of the 20th century, like that mix of like deep investment in Western canon and formal experimentation is actually a hallmark of, of poetic communities. And I think the other hallmark of the poetic of poetic communities is um, the increasing role of the critic. Yeah. Right. And then that's bringing us back to authority in a way as well. Like it is, it is not being the producer or the artist that is the most authoritative position, but in being uh, like kind of critic or curator or even in other like other um, artistic fields like uh, people like Diaghilev, who was uh, like a ballet producer of a kind, but was not himself a dancer um, and not even a choreographer. Well, sometimes he was. Yeah. yeah. That's just, that's, that's up for debate, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, it, I mean, it, this, this recording in a lot of ways and, and Tallman's presence across the recordings invites us to look back at literary communities and think about the roles of um, folks who weren't themselves writers, but the role that they played in establishing those communities and, and the labor that they performed um, to facilitate events, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, often, often gendered, often gendered. Oh, very gendered. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, this is around the time that we normally do a shout out to an event, um, a book, a reading, um, something that you'd like to recognize. Um, and so I'm going to start with Amy and ask you, uh, what would you like to shout out? I'll just shout out myself. Yeah, you can. <laughs> Go for it. By the time this podcast comes out, um, you listeners could go view my honors project online if you're interested in Canadian poetry or um, environmental writing or forest fires. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes to my digital exhibition. And as your supervisor, I'm going to say it's, it's a very excellent project. Um, super cool. Hannah, what about you? Shout out. I'm going to shout out uh, my favorite reading series in Vancouver, which is called the Real Vancouver Writers Series, which was started uh, during the Vancouver Olympics in response to the um, sort of Olympic Committee sanctioned cultural programming. Uh, it was a series of readings that were meant to sort of it was it was the literary community in Vancouver saying like, no, actually, here's what Vancouver literary community looks like. It's now been running for a decade, I believe. Um and it's uh, remarkable. I think it happens quarterly. Uh, and it's a really remarkable reading series, both for the level of thoughtful curation that goes into the kinds of, of stuff that you get to see there, but also for um, the hosts, Sean Cranberry and Dina Del Buccia, just do this amazing job of creating this environment where like, there is more catcalling at this reading series than I have ever experienced at another literary event. And it has so much to do with the tone they create through hosting. And I was really thinking about the sort of work they do around the series when I was listening. So shout out to the Real Vancouver Writer Series. Awesome. Thank you. Emily, what about you? Shout out. Um, my shout out is a bit of a cheat as well because I want a shout out for Amy. <laughs> <laughs> Amy is well deserving of many definitely, shout outs. Definitely. Um, Amy is presenting on her honors thesis in the Tech Talk series at the AMP Lab here at UBCO campus on the 26th of March at 12.30 p.m. Um, I don't usually do a shout out, but I'll, I will do one. Um, and actually, 
I mean, I do one that we had from from last time, but it's coming up really soon. It's uh, the Sharon Thiessen, uh, inaugural Sharon Thiessen lecture by John Lent, and it's coming up on Thursday, March 19th. Um, which is also going to be passed by the time this comes out. I'm like just dropping it left and right here. Love these weird audio archives. Yeah, it's like, wait a minute, time uh, <laughs> passing. Uh, okay, um, well, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up. Thank you so much, Hannah McGregor here yeah. from Vancouver. Um, Hannah, do you want to do you want to say uh, what you're you're here for uh, giving a workshop? Yeah, well, I mean, that's definitely going to be in the past. By the time it is definitely going to be in the past, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, I feel like it deserves a. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to podcasting. That's what I'm giving a workshop about. Um, you know what? In general, shout out to uh, maybe the the other podcast that I host, which is the Spoken Web podcast. Yeah. Um, which this has been an episode of. Soundbox Signals has been an episode of, but uh, more other things. I am actually the April episode of the Spoken Web podcast is me. Is me. Sweet. Because <laughs> so we haven't heard from you yet. No, you haven't. So you're going to oh. get to hear what I do, which is just complain about male poets you've been listening to sandbox signals episode four my name is kara shearer and i was joined in the studio by hannah mcgregor amy Thiessen, and emily murphy we recorded the episode back in early march when we were still able to get together in person and i'm recording the outro right now in my new studio at home which is a blanket fort I can assure you that we'll continue to bring you uh, new episodes of Sandbox Signals over the summer. You can find them on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, I want to thank the estate of Warren Tallman for allowing us to use the recording, which you can find online on our website, sandboxsignals.ok.ubc.ca. Please stay safe 